Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. Santa Claus has arrived in a way you've never seen him before. We'll tee up this weekend's big movie, Violent Night. Plus, I'm Jeff Braun. Steven Spielberg is back with his second movie in less than a year. I'll review The Fablemans. Plus, last week I told you a little bit about this wild new show on Netflix called 1899. Well, I finished watching it this week, and then I immediately fell down a related and also wild rabbit hole. But first, Steven Spielberg is on a roll. Last year, we got his first musical, a fantastic remake of West Side Story, and now we have the story of his childhood called The Fablemans. In this family, it's the scientists versus the artists. What kind of movie are we gonna make? Hundred dollars for a hobby? It's not a hobby, Dad. I got her! You dismiss what he does. It's playful or imaginative. Family art. It'll tear you in two. I don't want to disappoint you. You do what your heart says you have to. The Fablemans. Rated PG-13. Only in theaters Thanksgiving. The Fableman stars Michelle Williams, Paul Dano, Seth Rogen, and a bunch of kids. And it follows a kid named Sammy, who is the proxy for Steven Spielberg himself, who takes a rare screenwriting credit in this one, along with Tony Kushner. Like Spielberg, Sammy was raised in Arizona in the 1960s. He had an artistic mother, a scientific father, and the two different personalities didn't always make for a great family life, but did blend together nicely in Spielberg, making something pretty special there. And Spielberg himself didn't realize how much it had affected him until James Lipton pointed it out in a 1999 interview on Inside the Actor's Studio when he brought up the climax of Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Your father was a computer scientist. Your mother was a musician. When the spaceship lands, how do they communicate? That's they... a very good question. I like that. <laughs> You've answered the question. They make music on their computers, okay. and they are able to speak to each other. You see, I'd love to say, you know, I intended that, and I realized that was my mother and father, but not until this moment. <laughs> In The Fablemans, Michelle Williams plays the mom, and she's almost certainly going to get an Oscar nomination. She's been nominated several times before, but never won. So maybe this will be her year. We'll see if they put her up in the Best Actress or Best Supporting Actress category. I already called Kate Blanchett as the winner in the league category for Tar, and I think she would edge out Williams head-to-head, -head, but that stuff doesn't matter right now. The movie opens with Sammy as a little boy. He's going to see his first movie ever, and he's immediately enamored. He gets a little camera. He starts making his own movies, and by the time he's a teenager, the movies are pretty elaborate. He has a natural gift. That's his mom's artistic flair, and he's way ahead of his time technically, which his dad's scientific smarts in him, and he spends all his time and money making movies with his friends, including this impressive World War II movie. Uh, it's no Saving Private Ryan, of course, but for a 16-year-old with a zero budget, it's pretty impressive. Meantime, the home life does have some problems. Mom is not happy, and no matter what she tries to lift her spirits, uh, the depression is overtaking her. We also meet a family friend, played by Seth Rogen. He works with Sammy's dad and gets along really well with everyone, especially the mom. Sammy also has some younger sisters, one of them played by Julia Butters, who was the big scene stealer in Quentin Tarantino's once upon a time in Hollywood. She's a fantastic young actress. Glad to see her in another big movie, and I hope she uh, ends up with a great career. But it's really Sammy's movie, and for most of it, he's played by a young actor named Gabriel LaBelle, who, like most of you, I'd never seen before. He's really good, though. He shoulders the heavy load of carrying this movie. It couldn't have been easy with uh, being based on the director's life and all that. 
Besides the home life for Sammy and his movie life, he's also, you know, saddled with dealing with all the normal teenager stuff, girls, bullies, etc. The bullying is pretty brutal. He is the go-to kid to be picked on in his high school, mostly because he's one of the very few Jewish people in town. But maybe his movies will give him a shot at revenge against the bullies. And there's a hilarious sequence where he uh, starts dating this hardcore Christian girl who wants to convert him. Judd Hirsch also shows up for... I don't know, two scenes, 10 minutes or so, is a long-lost uncle of Sammy's mom, and he does some speech of fine about the importance of art. It's classic, unhinged uh, Judd Hirsch. Uh, very funny, also pretty moving. Great entertainment there. And while the movie is based on Spielberg's life, it's not a one-for-one -one match on every little thing. Some of the circumstances of his parents' relationship are changed from what I understood them to be, uh, having seen interviews with Spielberg over the years, uh, even though you know the results in the end are the same. But I'm pretty sure some of the stuff at the end of the movie is different. If you know Spielberg's story, there's a there's a famous story about him uh, near the beginning of his career that I thought for sure would be included, but it's not. So I think, you know, he sort of wants the movie to stand a little bit on its own and not just be, you know, the Steven Spielberg story. Movies based on real life, you know, they always change things. And I guess, you know, when the director is also the subject matter, we can't really begrudge him from changing whatever it is he felt like changing. It's an interesting movie in that regard. It's very well made, as you would expect from one of the greatest directors of all time. It is a little long. Uh, in principle, at least it's two and a half hours long. Probably doesn't need to be that long, but it also didn't really feel that like it was that long. It uh, goes by real quickly. The pacing is just excellent. Like I said off the top, Spielberg on a roll. He's been up and down over the last 20 years or so. I mean, for every Catch Me If You Can, Munich, or Bridge of Spies, there's also been many, if not more, you know, Kingdoms of the Crystal Skull, the BFG, or Ready Player Ones. And some of the other highs he's had, like War Horse or Lincoln that got Oscar nominations, haven't really been as high as, you know, the highs were in the first 25 years of his career. Fablemans is definitely up there among the best of his late-stage career and coming on the heels of West Side Story, pretty impressive. I don't know how many more movies we'll get from Steven Spielberg. He is 75 years old. Uh, I don't know. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy that's just going to retire. He'll probably go until he can't anymore. But uh, whatever he puts out, for as long as he can do it, I know I'm eager to see all the Spielberg movies. Four couch cushions out of five for The Fablemans in theaters now. And as Jeff pointed out, you can probably safely place a bet that The Fablemans will receive at least one, if not multiple, Oscar nominations. But now we go in the complete opposite direction. <laughs> a trailer came out for a movie that seems like a prank. Like when somebody told me to look this up, I thought... I started watching and I thought, this can't be. It just can't be. But it's a real movie from Universal that's coming out on February 24th. And it's based on a true story. It's called Cocaine Bear. A lot of cocaine was lost. I need you to go and get it. No, 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 no. don't eat that. Don't eat that. Let's see what kind of effect that has on me. The bear. It's did cocaine. So Elizabeth Banks directs this action <laughs> comedy set in Georgia in 1985, but a drug smuggling operation goes wrong. Several packages of cocaine were airdropped into a Georgia forest in this botched job, and a 500-pound black bear ends up consuming a lot of it, and then it goes on a murderous rampage in search of blow and blood. Apex Predator. High on cocaine. 
out of its mind. Now, the true story isn't quite so gruesome, although it is fascinating when you look at the details of how the, the drugs ended up in the forest and what happened to the guy who dropped them. Uh, he had he met an un, untimely demise. But uh, there, you know, like there really was this operation gone wrong, 40 co- kilogram. Or 40 kilograms of cocaine packages worth $20 million at the time went down into the forest. And a black bear, who is now known as Pablo Escobar, <laughs> helped himself to several million dollars of cocaine and unfortunately overdosed and died. The bear did not go on a rampage, uh, but they've taken that story and made something fun out of it. Great cast in this, including in his final role, the late... Ray Liotta and Carrie Russell. So again, Cocaine Bear debuts February 24th. Will you be seeing the Cocaine Bear, Jeff? Oh, I absolutely will be seeing the Cocaine Bear, uh, Brett. I, I watched the trailer. It's a, a red band trailer because there's a lot of swears in it and violence. And uh, I think the violence will be cartoony enough. It won't bother me too much. There was some grimness there with like an arm just laying on the ground. But uh, it's it, it looks too uh, too fun to pass up. It, it's got a, it'll be a great double feature one day, I think, with a snake on a plane or something like that. It's that kind of thing. And as it turns out, there is a Christmas movie out this weekend that is along those exact lines. We'll give you those details in a moment. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And a month ago, we talked about the Marvel Halloween special on Disney Plus called uh, Werewolves by Night. And now there's another MCU holiday special. This time it's the Guardians of the Galaxy's Christmas special. <laughs> I just saw on the calendar that right now on Earth, it's almost Christmas time. We don't have time for trivialities like Christmas. But Peter's so sad about Gamora being gone. Maybe if we go to Earth for a really wonderful Christmas gift, it would make him happy. Something special he will never forget. What about someone special? We're looking for the legendary Kevin Bacon. We're looking for the legendary Kevin Bacon. I just said that, Drax. If your voice is small and mousy, I think maybe he didn't hear you. The Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special, is it's only about 45 minutes long. I thought it was really fun. Uh, some minor spoilers follow. Nothing canonically important to the MCU in this at all, though, I don't think. We learn at the beginning that the late great Yondu ruined Christmas for Peter Quill. Uh, who, that's Chris Pratt, who spent the first few years of his life on Earth, of course. And now the Guardians want to throw a special Christmas for him to make him feel better. There's a lot of funny talk in this about what Christmas is and what it is not. And I actually I found it notable that they didn't come within a country mile of getting into the religious aspect. I don't think it was, you know, it was like an anti-Christian sentiment, but more along the lines of the complications that could arise from bringing up God and Jesus in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where there's a lot of space travel and magic and whatnot. I'm not saying they couldn't figure out a line to walk that would include religion. I'm just saying it's probably just too complicated to dig into, into a short thing. And with a lighter tone, I mean, squaring away God in the MCU is uh, complicated, not a good idea. Anywho, while we see all the Guardians, including Rocket and Groot and a bunch of the Ravagers, including uh, the funny one played by by the brother of director James Gunn. We spent most of the time with Drax and Mantis, characters that are not big stars like Chris Pratt, who uh, time is money for that guy, and also characters that don't require a bunch of CGI like Rocket and Groot. You can kind of sense the budget in this thing. It doesn't detract from the fun, but it was noticeable to me. Anyways, Drax and Mantis uh, head to Earth for this specific Christmas mission that involves Kevin Bacon as himself. And Bacon, I think, is having the most fun of anyone 
I don't is he the first A-list actor to appear as themselves in the MCU? And does that prevent him from playing another character in a Marvel movie? But also he played a character in an X-Men movie. So how does that square if they bring the X-Men into the MCU? I don't know. The nerdy stickler in me, you know, really went to town watching this for some reason. But at 45 minutes, you know, with Drax and Mantis, that's time well spent because they are the gifts that keep on giving comedy-wise. There's also a lot of music. Some of it's very funny. Some of it is, you know, heartwarming and Christmassy. It's a good addition to the Christmas viewing repertoire. Probably too early, you know, to call it an instant classic or anything like this. But again, like the Werewolf by Night special, it's it's a fun, out-of-left-field kind of entry in the MCU. And like we said a month ago, hopefully they can put out a few more of these types of shows. I would take four of these standalone specials, whatever they are, over, you know, another Disney Plus series that feels like a bloated Marvel movie that's just stretched over six episodes for no reason. So, yeah, if you haven't watched yet the Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special, it's out there now on Disney Plus, and it's a lot of fun. Thank you for the reminder on that, Jeff. I had forgotten about this. I knew it was coming, but just completely forgot because I was too busy binging something else, and we'll get into that in our next segment. But right now, we want to tell you about how there's a new Christmas movie out this weekend which I think looks amazing. David Harbour stars as Santa Claus in Violent Night. You ain't driving, are you? I steer a little, but the reindeer do most of the work. <laughs> this is my fourth year as a Santa. How about you? I started the whole damn thing. So there you go. He's not just a guy dressed up as Santa. He is Santa. And he's about to drop in on a rather naughty situation. It's Christmas! We decided that you could have one gift. Early. What is it? That is a direct hotline to Santa Claus himself. I can talk to Santa. All right, revelers. Welcome to your worst Christmas ever. Let's go! You have $300 million in your personal vault. That's what I want for Christmas. John Leguizamo leads a team of crooks trying to rob a wealthy family just as Santa shows up in the house to drop off young Trudy's presents. <laughs> I don't want any trouble, okay? Something's gonna scooch up that chimney. So the beginning of that clip, he was eating a cookie, which was funny because it was just fun to see. I thought that he was gonna like throw it up or throw it away, but he ate the cookie and he was happy. Um, so make sure you leave some milk and cookies for Santa. But what happened at the end was a mistake. The dude hit Santa. But this Kris Kringle is no slouch. He fights back, and it turns out jolly old St. Nick is about to deliver a blunt force Christmas miracle. My name is Trudy Lightstone. Are you going to help us, Santa? Yeah, Trudy. Santa? No, my nice list. Santa Claus is coming to town. Time for some season's beatings. <laughs> that line alone... Hat made me want to see this. 
meetings. That is funny. This would be a good double feature with the uh, Bad Santa or something down the road too. Yeah, and this it's sitting around seventy percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Some of the reviews say it's witless and forces you to try to laugh, and the others, some others say that it's brilliant and a lot of fun. Super violent. Like this is going to be a violent, violent film indeed, living up to its names or its title, Violent Night. But uh, I'm excited to check this out because I've been dragging my feet going to go see certain movies. I still haven't seen Wakanda forever, uh, but this one I, I have to see, especially considering that we have our holiday special coming up in just a couple of weeks' time here on the Couch Potatoes. So maybe this one will make the cut as one of my favorite Christmas movies of all time. Up next, I want to complete a review that I began with you last week, and I should point out as well that... Uh, at least one of our listeners was not too happy with me about that recommendation, so I need to explain myself. And then Jeff is going to revisit an all-time comedy holiday classic. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. The biggest show on Netflix right now is the Adams Family-inspired series Wednesday. It debuted on the weekend. It has set a record for most hours watched in a week for an English-language show. 341.2 million Stranger, Four Things, or Stranger Things 4 held the previous record with roughly 6 million fewer hours, but the South Korean show Squid Game still holds the record with about 200 million more hours. So I guess I'm going to have to check out this Wednesday show. Maybe I'll get to that this week and report back next week. But for now, last week I told you about a big new show on Netflix that debuted recently on November 17th. It's a rather buzzy show that remains in the top 10 for Netflix. I'd only watched a couple episodes last week, but I finished it over the weekend, and wow, it was wild. It's 1899. Six hours ago, we received a message. We believe this comes from the Prometheus. You think the passengers, they're still alive? Viens dans les courses. Capitaine, we paid good money for this trip. Seven days to get to New York, no detours. It is a mystery on the Atlantic set in the year 1899. Or so we thought. It's about a cruise ship called the, C the Kerberos, which is bringing passengers to the U.S., but they get a distress signal and believe it's coming from the Prometheus, another ship that vanished four months earlier, they go to look for it, and when they find it, it becomes the biggest mystery of their lives. This show is from the creators of Dark, which is a German show about time travel, and it's one of the craziest time travel stories I've ever watched. In fact, it's one of the craziest stories I've ever watched, period. And we'll get some more detailed thoughts on that in a moment. This new show is definitely looking to appeal to a huge international audience. We've got people who speak English, German, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Polish, Danish, Norwegian, Cantonese, and even some Japanese. And I loved the first two episodes, so that's where I was at last week. The first episode does a really nice job of quickly setting the table and introducing us to the main players before revealing that they're going to look for that Prometheus ship. And when they get there, it is really spooky. So I was expecting this to be some sort of a dark period a period piece mystery with some brain twisty stuff and to an extent it was but it also turned into something vastly different and i loved that too listener tammy 
by the way, sent me a note saying that she was mad that I recommended this. She hated it, hated the ending. So it's not for everybody. So consider yourself warned because it did veer away from a period creep show to more of a haunted sci-fi. The making of was fascinating. The way they used the volume technology was amazing. I don't know if you're familiar with this volume technology, but it's basically like imagine a giant circular or at the very least half circle screen that you can set up around your soundstage and you can just project whatever image you want on it so it looks like you're shooting that in the background and it was seamless like I had no idea they used the volume when they were out in the water I thought that they had actually gone out and and shot these somewhere on real water so it just it looked so good and they even used it in settings that looked entirely real like like the the banquet hall when I was when I saw the banquet hall I thought wow they created a wonderful set here and they did but it wasn't not nearly as big as I thought it was so that's pretty cool and I loved the international cast with a message there that doesn't matter where you're from we all have to work together and survive in spite of our cultural differences and as I mentioned be warned the ending is not at all what I expected but it definitely sets up another season. They have a planned three-story arc, and given the show's success so far, I'm sure they're going to move ahead. So I loved 1899, but again, consider yourself warned. It's another brainy and weighty show from the creators of Dark, which was just bonkers, and I've always meant to go back and watch that show. So I finally did. I finally went back and started watching Dark. First one came out in 2017, the second season in 2019, and the third in 2020. And if you're asking yourself, what is dark? It's unclear what exactly caused the events in Winden. Maybe we can save them. <laughs> All of them. Where did it all begin? In the small town of Winden, a 15-year-old boy disappeared under fairly mysterious circumstances. In the future, in the past, or is everything connected in one endless loop? First off, yes, you can watch it with an English dub, but I recommend you watch it in its original form. German, the first ever German show commissioned by Netflix as they look to increase their global audience. And it's a show about time travel, as I mentioned before, set in a small German town, which just happens to be home to an access point to go back in time. And I won't get into the details of how because it's way too complicated. But needless to say, the effects are cosmic and complicated. And it's not played as an adventure like Back to the Future. This is an existential and, quite frankly, tragic drama. And it will blow your mind. When season two arrived, part of the problem there is I could barely remember season one. That's why I always meant to go back and watch. And just also meant to go back and watch because it was so complex. There was a, There's a lot going on. And uh, it really requires a second watch, I think. Maybe even a third watch. Because the way it, it all ties together is brilliant. It's so well written. But there are so many storylines and characters that are intertwining. And so many versions of the same characters. So it can be hard to follow it. Uh, but it asks some really tough questions about... And interesting questions about time travel. Like, can we... Should if, if it did exist, could we 
change things? Or would we just go into a loop? Like, basically, is everything predetermined? Are we bound to repeat the same mistakes? Uh, it asks questions about overall predeterminism. Like, do we have free will in our lives? Is there a plan? And if there's a plan, who's pulling the strings? And lots of fun questions about paradoxes, too. Like, the, there's a time device in this show. The guy who built it would have never been able to build it had he not been given the plans, but the plans would have never surfaced had he not built it. So it's very much, a, there's a lot of chicken and egg stuff in this. And it's got an excellent cast, and I definitely enjoyed it more. I loved it the first time I watched it, but I'm enjoying it more on the second viewing. Um, I think partly because I, I know what's happening and can connect the dots a little bit easier. And I'm still having a hard time following it along, but there's just so much to consume here, and it's really fun. And it's interesting to see characters as adults, and then kids, and then adults again, and you see that, as it turns out, they haven't really changed at all from when they were young. So there's another question. Do we change as we grow, or are we really just always the same person hiding behind a shell that we learn to wear? It's three seasons in total, 26 episodes. First season is 10 episodes. Seasons two and three are eight each. Science fiction show, it's a drama that contemplates some deep questions about life. It's a story about family. It's a story about friendship. It's a story about love and a story of the lengths to which we will go to try to change things for the better, if it's even possible. Incredibly written, well-written, well-acted. It looks gorgeous. I've already plowed through the first season and half the second season. I got almost no sleep this week as a result. Stupid binge-watching, but yeah, I recommend both. Eighteen ninety-nine. And Dark on Netflix. Up next, can't wait to see what Jeff has to say about this classic. It's been years since I've watched it. Maybe the time has come. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. And Jeff's going to tell you about a an all-time Hall of Fame movie. But before that, I just there's a, one more thing I forgot to mention about 1899 and Dark. European storytellers get it when it comes to establishing shots. They use these big sweeping, wide, beautiful shots of whatever landscape to separate scenes or to set the scene. And they actually hold the shot. I've said this before. They hold the shot for three, four, five, six seconds. Uh, but in North America, our attention spans are apparently so short that they have to just dump out of these shots after like two seconds. You know, I, I just just let me appreciate your beautiful cinematography. Like one more second even. Because it's, it's like, oh, that's pretty. Oh, it's gone. Whereas in these shows, you can actually acknowledge how nice it is and, and, and then absorb it and let it wash over you. But yeah, Dark in 1899, both solid, solid recommendations. And again, these are not your typical stories. They are wildly unique, and that's why I think they're so special, but they're definitely not for everyone. Just watch the trailers and uh, make up your own mind. Uh, in both cases, don't watch with dubbed English. I forgot to mention this, especially 1899. The fact that everyone speaks different languages is an integral part of that story. So having everyone speak English just kind of doesn't make sense and I think ruins the whole point. Anyway, that's all I got for uh, for that stuff. Where are we going for Thanksgiving, Mr. Braun? Yeah, well, it was American Thanksgiving a week ago, so I watched what I guess is the best and I, also one of the only Thanksgiving movies of all time. And, of course, it's Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Why? What? That's it. If I don't clear my sinuses, I'll snore all night. Gee, if your kid spills his milk, what do you do, slap him in the head? What? 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 What is that supposed to mean? You're not a very tolerant person. Look, 
You've been under my skin since New York, starting with ripping off my cab. God, you're a tight ass. How'd you like a mouthful of teeth? Oh, and hostile, too. Nice personality combination. Hostile and intolerant. That's borderline criminal. Steve Martin and John Candy each have an impressive list of comedies with their names on them, but none more so than the movie that brought them together in 1987, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And director John Hughes injected the comedy with just the right amount of heart and warmth, pulling off a very nice balancing act that so many comedies struggle with. You can either go, you know, the Dumb and Dumber route and forego any sniff of sentimentality whatsoever, or you can tread the shark-infested waters of trying to have your comedy actually be about something. That rarely works well. But planes, trains, and automobiles opts for that ladder and wins. It's a, there's a nice twist at the end that will break your heart every time. It doesn't take away from the scenes that involve things like mistaken pillows or a rental car agency that doesn't live up to expectations. Welcome to Marathon. May I help you? Yes. May I help you? You can start by wiping that dumbass smile off your <laughs> rosy cheeks. Then you can give me a automobile, a Datsun, a Toyota, a Mustang, a Buick, four wheels and a seat. <laughs> I really don't care for the way you're speaking to me. And I really don't care for the way your company left me in the middle of nowhere with keys to a car that isn't there and I really didn't care to walk down a highway and across a runway to get back here to have you smile at my face I want a car right now <laughs> this is a Hall of Fame freakout scene 18 F-bombs there and uh, she added one after that of course uh, my favorite scene though is the one where they end up going the wrong way down the highway, and some other drivers try to alert them to their problem. Holy look at that guy on the wrong side of the highway. He's going to kill somebody. Put your window down! You want something? Uh, probably drunk. You're going the wrong way! What? You're going the wrong way! He says we're going the wrong way. Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? Yeah, how would he know? Thank you. Thanks a lot. Terrific. Thank you. <laughs> what a moron. They're going in the wrong direction. You're going to kill somebody. The movie is still so funny, and being from the 80s, you know, it's very lean. It comes in at a tight 91 minutes. That surprises me every time I watch this. Uh, you know, talk about the good old days. I wish they made movies that short now. I was also struck this time about just how good John Candy is in this movie. He probably should have been nominated for an Oscar because he's at once the most obnoxious guy on the planet, but also the most lovable, and few actors can pull off something like that. Should also point out that there's this new uh, 4K Blu-ray for planes, trains, and automobiles, and while a 4K transfer for a movie like this may not seem necessary it does seem that the special features included are worth it because there's also an hour of never before seen deleted scenes that are by all accounts pretty incredible john hughes is pretty good about you know keeping the big picture as his focus and cutting some really good stuff for the betterment of the overall movie he just 
turned on the camera and let John John Candy and Steve Martin cook. And those are two pretty funny guys to just let rip. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I don't have a 4K Blu-ray player, but someday, somehow, I'm going to see those deleted scenes. But uh, for now, if you haven't seen it in a while, like you said, Brett, uh, going back and rewatching Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is just a joy. It was uh, almost certainly the highlight of my week. Yeah, it looks like it's on Netflix, so I think I have some homework this week. Okay, so that's a classic we talked earlier about a movie that might go down as a classic for different reasons. That was Cocaine Bear, which saw its first trailer released this week. <laughs> and, but w- after I watched that trailer, I noticed a new trailer for a movie that I'm wondering if it should even exist. It's Transformers Rise of the Beasts. The one to fear, Prime. There is a darkness coming. Transformers! Transformers! Yeah, you want to know what to fear, what to know? You want to know about the coming darkness? It's the new Transformers movie because they're awful. Although, should I maybe tell myself not so fast? Because there were five movies directed by Michael Kay. And then there was a Bumblebee movie in 2018, and that was not only good, it was excellent. I should actually get that on Blu-ray or 4K if it exists. So this movie is set in the 90s, and it's going to introduce the Maximals, the Predacons, and the Terrorcons from the popular Beast Wars cartoon from the 90s. Now, there was talk of a sixth Transformers movie in the Michael Bay timeline because the end of the fifth movie certainly indicated that another one had to happen. But instead, we went back to the 80s for that Bumblebee movie. And wouldn't you know it, they finally stuck the landing and not only made a decent Transformers movie, but a great one. And uh, this one's being described as a sequel to Bumblebee. So I guess we're moving ahead with a new timeline. Good riddance to the Mi- the Michael Bay, the Bayhem era of Transformers. <laughs> and uh, this new Transformers arrives June 9th, 2023. And it actually doesn't look all that bad. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother. Don't bother.